Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Uh, if you think a show about financial regulation is likely to be boring, I want you to think again. Uh, financial reg regulations are really about money, and in particular, every American's money. Consumer credit, credit cards, student loans, how your credit gets reported, mortgage finance, getting a mortgage, who gets a mortgage, fintech, the uh, technology piece of banking that's coming into vogue now, uh, cryptocurrencies, and and increasingly, it's not only about consumers, but it's how, how small businesses get financed. In other words, it's a matter that's vital to tens and tens of millions of Americans. Uh, and where the lens, where we're going with this today is that financial regulation has become one of the primary battlefields in which the left hopes to fundamentally transform America through the prisms of uh, race and social justice. It's a very interesting battlefield, one that we don't know enough about. And with me to help explore this is uh, Todd Zawicki, who's professor of law at George Mason University, uh, Scalia School of Law, senior fellow at Cato Institute, and recently served as chairman of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Task Force on Consumer Financial Law. And joining me with, with Todd, you guys are long-term friends. Brian and I work together. Brian Johnson uh, was deputy director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, he's now a partner at Alston and Byrd uh, Law Firm, and he was Jeb Henserling's uh, Chief Banking Counsel for the House Financial Services Committee. Brian, Todd, you both worked together at the uh, that, that wonderful creation of Elizabeth Warren's, which was the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and Todd and I worked, or not Todd, Brian and I worked together during the Trump transition laboring long into the night to figure out ways to get rid of it. And instead of getting rid of it, Brian, you ended up as deputy director. <laughs> so you were, we were right involved in the sausage factory. What were you trying to get done uh, there? Sure. So uh, it's great being here and great to see Todd as well. Uh, let me give you maybe the short history of the CFPB so folks uh, who aren't kind of in the weeds on what this agency is, what it does understand it, and then I can discuss where we were circa late 2017 when there was the first leadership transition for the agency in its history. It was a creation of the Dodd-Frank Act, a massive piece of legislation um, passed on nearly a partisan basis uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And it was a new agency, a new design. So it was designed specifically to be uh, in essence, unaccountable to any of the political branches of the federal government. So the director is appointed by the president, but once appointed, can't be removed except under limited circumstances. Uh, the agency's budget is drawn from the Federal Reserve, not from the U.S. Treasury. So Congress, by law, can't even review the agency's budget. So it's intended to be an independent regulatory agency and extremely independent. Uh, it had a combination of features that actually got it into trouble with Supreme Court cases challenging the constitutionality of that and, 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 and doesn't it get to set its own budget? 
It does. I mean, Congress doesn't even approve the budget for this no, agency. No, fam famously, by law, uh, the Bureau, on a quarterly basis, uh, the director can send a letter, it's usually two paragraphs, saying that I've determined that I need $250 million uh, to uh, run the agency for the next quarter. Um, there's a maximum cap established by law, but it's quite generous. And so um, in the first seven years of the agency's history, it was uh, you know, Democrat controlled. There was a change, um, obviously, in the 2016 election and the Trump administration came in. And so there was a transition process where uh, acting, or where Director Cordray uh, resigned um, to pursue other uh, interests. And um, then there was that, a that legal- That was Richard Cordray. He left to run for governor, for of, governor uh, of Ohio. Ohio. Yeah. Correct. And then there was uh, actually a leadership uh, battle where um, President Trump attempted to appoint um, uh, Mick Mulvaney, who was his OMB director, and uh, a, a CFPB employee who had been tapped at the 11th hour to serve as deputy, filed a lawsuit um, seeking to unseat acting director Mulvaney. That played out over the course of nine months, but in essence, the president was allowed to appoint uh, his preferred um, uh, acting uh, director. And so I came in as the first employee under Mick Mulvaney. And what we tried to accomplish there was bring uh, some coherence to the way in which the Bureau exercises its authority. Uh, it was designed to be extremely independent. It has significant powers um, over financial markets and uh, significant ability to regulate uh, and supervise both banks and non-banks in the financial sector. It's really important if there's little oversight of that agency in how internally it sets internal processes and controls to regulate and govern the use of that uh, authority. Well, Todd, you've written extensively on on financial regulation, the regulatory agencies. I mean, why did we need a new agency? I mean, give me a little history. Or haven't we already been pretty regulated? Haven't the credit card, haven't the banks, have consumer lending has been pretty regulated? What what what, what does that framework look like? And why did this new agency uh, need to happen? Need to happen may be an overstatement. Okay. Um, well, Elizabeth Warren thought yes, it needed uh, she, to happen. Yes, she did. Um, and <laughs> I had been on record uh, of um, suggesting that maybe it would have been better to just allow the Federal Trade Commission uh, to uh, take over a lot of these responsibilities rather yeah. than creating a new, um, a new agency. Um, but, but I think it is important to understand the historical background to this and sort of where our task force came in, uh, which is, um, that the, the history of consumer credit in the United States really goes back about a century um, to the beginning of the, uh, the, the, uh, the 20th century. In the early 1900s, basically what we saw is, is uh, people moved into the cities. They left the farms, immigrants came in. Uh, what we saw was the first time people needed access to credit to be able to make ends meet, to deal with the vicissitudes of living in the city when you're not growing your own crops or things like that. And for most people, what was valuable to them were their wages, um, because these were penniless farmers or immigrants who didn't have assets. Um, and so what happened was they ran smack up against the um, old Victorian lending laws, uh, strict interest rate ceilings and that sort of thing. And the result was loan sharks proliferated, uh, and people were basically in hock, uh, um, you know, m millions of people were in hock to illegal lenders um, who used pretty unsavory tactics to collect their debts. And at the time, the idea was, well, let's reform the laws to bring it out in the open, allow competition and consumer choice and treat people like grownups. Um, uh, and so we went through this reform period um, that uh, allowed access to credit. Uh, the new, uh, after the Great Depression, they cracked down on that again, such that by the 1970s, loan sharks were back. 
according to the United States Senate. Now, what did they crack down on during the Depression? Uh, they the cracked depression. down on access to credit after uh, the Great Depression. They uh, restricted So interest. the great way to stimulate economy is to cut back on access yes, to credit. Th th that's right. That's that would right. be counterintuitive that, and wrong. That, that's right. They decided <laughs> that, uh, that the great a lot of people thought the Great Depression was caused by too much access to consumer credit. Um, and so what we saw by the 19, yeah. so according to a 1968 U.S. Senate report, for example, the second largest revenue source of the mafia was uh, loan sharking, trailing only illegal gambling. And one estimate by an FBI organized crime expert at the time was that the loan sharking racket in the United States at that time was about $10 billion. And to give you a sense of that, that's about $69 billion in today's dollars. To give you a sense of that, that's about twice the size of the entire payday loan market in America today, both online and in person. Um, and so what we learned was consumers need access to credit, uh, that you can't, you can wish away the supply, but you can't take away the demand. And so what we saw in the early 1970s, again, was a, a push for reform, a push for regulation. Um, and the big thing that happened during that period was the rise of a national um, consumer finance market, driven largely by department stores, actually. Mm. Department store credit was the largest place where people went for credit at that time. And so you had Sears and JCPenney and these ones who sort of ran these national Was that like the, lay, the layaway plan? And layaway, uh, early credit cards, mm -hmm. um, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, mortgage markets became more national. And so we saw this movement in the 70s towards reform and modernization. And this is when we saw the first great growth of federal regulation in this area on top of state regulation. So we got the Truth in Lending Act. We got some mortgage finance laws. We got the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and a lot of other uh, sorts of things. Um, by, uh, um, now, is this mainly federal regulation or was it is also states engaged? Mainly federal mainly at this federal. point. Okay. And, and it had to do with the national market. So, for example, a good example is debt collection. Yeah. Um, as the cost of long-distance telephone service fell, it became easier to set up sort of phone banks to try to collect debts across state lines which made it very difficult for states to, uh, to regulate it. So we had a national market, um, uh, and there was a National Commission on Consumer Finance that was set up at the time that looked at all the laws that our task force was, was modeled on. 2010, as Brian noted, after the uh, financial crisis, we got Dodd-Frank Act, creation of the CFPB. Um, and then that's where we came in, which is uh, last year, uh, Brian as deputy director and uh, director Kathy Kraninger gave me the opportunity to come in and lead this task force. Um, and as I think this history says, this wasn't a Trump takeover or anything like that. What this was, was just as the 1970s called forth a need for modernization based on a new national market uh, and the like, we're in a completely different world today. It's not a national market. It's a nowhere market. It's the internet. It's people consume products differently. They use products differently. They get information differently. And so we were tasked to... Um, review the existing framework um, and come up with ways of modernizing and reforming consumer financial protection law to deal with the realities of the modern age in which consumers get credit, access to credit, uh, and the like, and sort of review this whole 50-year sort of framework of, you know, Ralph Nader uh, version of consumer financial protection stacked on big stacks of documents that nobody reads. Well, the working uh, the assumption like. is that every piece of consumer financial protection is a good thing because consumers are gullible and don't know what they're doing. And I think in many cases people find money complex and 
you know, I one of the, I went through a negotiating class, and one of the sessions was on whether you want to negotiate with a credit card company on their fine print. <laughs> we yeah. we concluded that that was probably a waste of time. <laughs> so so what? Uh, and driven by litigation in the first so, place. So, I mean, but so the, there's question, this paradigm. Oh, go, yeah, continue. Yeah. Sure. So you said why? You know why was the CFPB necessary? Yeah. I think it was the thinking was post crisis huge problems in the mortgage market, right? Accumulation of risk that folks didn't appreciate. Everybody figured but it out. But driven by Mr. Dodd and Mr. Frank. Right. So here's what Dodd-Frank did and here's what it didn't do. Yeah. Uh, the notion was because the existing federal regulators, and there are a lot, so NCUA for credit unions, OCC, FDIC, Fed, um, all were there, and they had a prudential regulatory Now, do those count as Scrabble answers? <laughs> well, uh, Wait, I, I, it's the, not DC you, You're watching the Bill, show, Bill Walton show, and I'm talking here with uh, Todd Zwicky and Brian Johnson. We're talking about consumer financial protection and, and uh, the alphabet soup that, uh, that's presumably protecting us. Mm -hmm. So the idea was, because it was a fractured regulatory uh, framework, Nobody really had their eye on the ball in terms of consumer protection. And because they had a joint mission of ensuring the safety and soundness of institutions, they weren't as focused or were distracted from consumer protection. And so the idea was what's needed is a new agency solely focused on consumer protection without that um, balanced approach. And so what Dodd-Frank accomplished was it took authorities from those existing agencies, it shuttered one and created a new one, and consolidated all of those authorities within one agency focused, again, solely on enforcing federal consumer financial law. What it didn't do was seek to harmonize all of those laws that all of those disparate agencies had already been enforcing. So Todd mentioned a couple of them, the big ones. But the Bureau has responsibility for enforcing 18 separate federal laws that had been passed mostly in the 60s and 70s. So Dodd-Frank, because it was a crisis you know, major piece of legislation, but it really passed, uh, you know, post-crisis on a fairly accelerated schedule, didn't seek to do the hard legislative work of how do you harmonize all of those 18 laws in a way that makes sense for the modern marketplace. Instead, it just gave responsibility and took it away from the other agencies and gave it to the CFPB and said, go figure it out. So that's one of the things that wasn't accomplished, which is still a sticking point for how do we you know, modernize consumer finance regulation? And the purpose, again, of the task force was 50 years after the original uh, commission, let's take a look at this and try and do some of the thinking that wasn't done in the Dodd-Frank Act a decade after Dodd-Frank with the experience of having grappled with some of the tough issues. How do you integrate, how do you harmonize regulation in a way So what's efficient? an example of an old law that makes no sense and what would you do to modernize it? Well, I would say in the disclosure realm, you know, okay. these laws were passed in the 1970s. So this was before even a fax machine. Everything <laughs> was paper-based, you know, hand-processed. We're now in the digital age. So what's the best disclosure now for a consumer in the context of a consumer finance transaction, be it a mortgage or be it a payday loan or be it a credit card? It's something that's adaptable based off of you know, what an institution knows about that particular consumer and delivered in real time. You can do that on a digital basis. And I think there's real opportunity for 
real-time delivery of meaningful disclosures to consumers that's not the legalese that you mentioned where you have, you know, 100 pages in a, at a mortgage closing that you have to kind of... Here's the way hope, I think about hope. all that language. Yeah. I assume that there are lawyers, dozens and do thousands of lawyers litigating this day after day after day, and that language is the product of hundreds of, of uh, legal outcomes. Mm -hmm. And yep. so I figure there's already people lawyering for me. I don't need to do it myself. <laughs> is that... I, yeah, well, there's, there's this kind of like um, one of these uh, unlikely bedfellows type situations we learned from the, the task force, which is that there are two groups who adore dense, complex uh, things that can't be understood by ordinary Americans. Uh, the first seem to be consumer activist groups uh, and their allies in the plaintiff's bar, right, uh, who seize on every little sort of uh, Quirker problem. Um, a lot of these laws are set up so you don't even have to show any consumer harm in order to uh, uh, to, to tote up a bunch of uh, claims and seek statutory damages. My favorite example was a case a few years ago where um, the uh, um, the electronic electronic funds transfer act said that uh, uh, banks had to have physical placards on the front of ATMs telling you what the uh, ATM fee was. Over time, that had been replaced by a, a splash screen that you had to consent to paying the fee. So plaintiff's lawyers went around town and literally took pictures of ATMs without the placards and then um, brought lawsuits and shook down the industry for millions of, uh, of, of dollars for this sort of thing with no harm shown to any, uh, any consumer. And, and a lot of the sort of um, uh, consumer activist groups like a lot of these paper-based disclosures and these sorts of things for reasons I don't fully understand but the other one, to tell the truth, is that the big banks don't mind it either. Uh, for the big banks, what they say is just tell us what we have to do. Tell us we don't have to worry about whether consumers can understand it or use it or whatever. Just tell us what we need to do to be covered. It's just the cost of doing business uh, for them. Um, and, it, and, and there has to be a better way for consumers to actually be able to get the information. Well, it, it, it creates what Jamie Dimon famously calls a moat around their business, which is it's so complex and there's so many things to, to comply with that only the very biggest have got the budgets to, to, to withstand all that regulation. If you're a small community bank and you're asked to do all this disclosure, you, you, you can't do it. I mean, it, you can't keep up with it. That's right. I'm, it, it drives concentration. I mean, if you look at the FDIC issues, a quarterly banking profile. If you look at uh, that banking profile circa you know, 2007, so pre-crisis and today, what do you see is the effect of Dodd-Frank and you know, each overlay of regulation? You see uh, they distinguish between banks with less than a billion in assets and banks with over a billion in assets. You see that overall the number of banking institutions has shrunk by 40% just in the last 14 years. Uh, but the number of institutions with greater than one billion in assets has actually increased. And when you look at the total assets held by the concentration of those larger banks, it's doubled, roughly, uh, in the last 14 years. So you do see uh, uh, that the trend, and it's you know in part long term, but I think is accelerating. The trend is towards greater and greater Order concentration. Of Don't the five bank, five biggest banks, have something like 60, 70 percent of all the? I don't, my 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 numbers are dated, but it's some enormous share. Significant portion of assets and deposits. Okay. So both assets and liabilities uh, in the banking sector are concentrated well, at a high level. Well, I, and to your point, they have the economies of scale 
to deal with the complexity of regulations. If you're looking at a community bank with maybe one branch, there's not a team of compliance professionals there uh, waiting well, to update well, compliance management systems well, for Well, and this gets back yeah. to what I was talking about in my introduction about the, the sort of this, this regulatory de facto attack on small business. Yep. Dodd-Frank put a moat around the big banks, made them bigger, protected them. They can afford all this regulation. Community banks can't. Community banks are one of the primary sources of, of credit to, to would-be startup and, and small businesses. That's right, Bill. It's an incredibly important point. That the, and, and last time I counted, it was about two or three years ago, there had been like one community bank that's been started since Dodd-Frank. Is that still pretty much Not the... It, that was, uh, I think, accurate up until 2017, and there have been new charters granted. I, I'd say the other major like factor, three? Seen, yeah, right. is okay. um, you know, look, the large institutions play an incredibly important and increasingly central role in the financial system and in the broader economy. The other effect that we're seeing, which is the overlay of international bank regulation as well, which accelerated through Dodd Frank and after, is there are now asset classes because of the regulation laid on top of banking institutions that are no longer profitable undertake. So you're seeing the movement and transfer of assets out of the banking system into the non-bank realm just because banks can't profitably do it anymore. So you see mortgage servicing has nearly moved out of, out of banking institutions. And the question that's never asked by regulators is, have we gone too far? In other words, if banks aren't, are, are just exiting markets altogether, and they're being taken up by state-regulated institutions or you know, other institutions. Have we gone too far here? And the answer is not that. The answer is we need more regulation on the folks who are outside the banking system. And so the pejorative is the shadow banking system. And the idea is we need now new bank regulations on the non-banks, right. including, for instance, in, you know, in, under contemplation, presumably by CFPB, the imposition of capital and liquidity regulations on non-banks, and we saw calls for that during the pandemic for, um, you know, for mortgage servicers. Um, and now CSBS and state banking regulators are, are actively working on that. Well, so well, they don't hold deposits. Taxpayers aren't on the hook if those institutions fail. Nonetheless, the prudential safety and soundness approach to banking regulation is now being imported over to non-banks. So uh, the regulators saw every, every, these businesses leaving the big banks and they thought there's a culprit here and they never looked in the mirror. <laughs> and the latest, of course, Brian, well, is the Community Reinvestment Act has yeah. uh, been floated in the it, past week uh, to apply to. Yeah, uh, part of banks. it is, you know, the slow accumulation and aggregation of regs. So you can't really point to one single regulation that's come out in, say, the last 10 years that is driving all of this. But it's the slow accretion of regulation that has a, a large cumulative effect. So any individual regulator who's pushing out that one reg won't really bear the brunt of being blamed, I think, by history for uh, a significant change. Um, but again, the collective action from multiple regulators at a federal level over time has had this effect. And we're, you know, we're able to understand those trends. The question is, what do you do as a policy matter? Do you rethink the overall approach of regulation, it seems to be that it's a one-way ratchet and is in, inexorably going in one direction. And it's been a one-way ratchet regardless of the administration. I mean, it was a ratchet during both Bush administrations. You get Republicans, and I don't. I think Trump rolled some of it back. Didn't I think he? that's accurate, 
Bill, and I, and I think this point that Brian makes is really important, which is most people don't understand the way in which they just think of the banks as that's, a, that's regulation out there on Wall Street, right? But they don't think about this point at the way in which mo- money is energy, right? Money is what we need to live. Access to financial services is what we need to live. Um, and, you know, the financial system today works pretty well for most middle class families. We get access to good products and competitive markets uh, with good uh, uh, players. But there's a lot of people who have been left out, right? There is still a big chunk of Americans who are, uh, um, who are excluded from the financial system. Um, and regulation can make it much more difficult uh, for them. And, and Brian, I think, hit on a very important point, which is one of the, and we could come back to this, but, but one of the ways that this does is the great legacy of Dodd-Frank is going to be, it has been to promote consolidation in every single industry it has touched, whether it's um, uh, mortgages or credit cards or banks or whatever. And a lot of it has to do partly, I've been traveling this country for 10 years talking about Dodd-Frank. And I could tell you, I've talked to thousands of people and I've, Dodd-Frank was supposed to do one thing, which is get rid of too big to fail. I've asked thousands of Americans whether they think Dodd-Frank got rid of too big to fail. And I've not found a single person who thinks that Dodd-Frank got rid of too big to fail. Think about that. 2,400 pages of legislation, tens of thousands of pages of regulations, tens of billions of dollars of regulatory cost. And Dodd-Frank, nobody believes, did the one thing it was supposed to do. What did it do? It consolidated every industry it touched. It raised regulatory costs. And this has a real consequences, to your point, Bill, which is small banks in America do most of the agriculture lending. They do most of the small business lending. Yeah, yeah. They provide the, the uh, banking services in small town or rural communities. The big banks aren't interested in making a farm loan in a small town in, uh, in, in Iowa or a small business loan for a strip mall in some rural uh, community. And so, uh, and so we focused a lot in recent years uh, uh, on financial services and, you know, for, for minorities and the like. But one of the real crises in this country right now that we learned on the task force is um, financial inclusion for rural Americans is a big problem, and it's getting bigger. Banks are closing in small towns. Uh, Internet service is not as available, so it's not as easy to substitute online banking services. And it's a problem people haven't really focused on uh, um, because it's just not an interesting thing to sort of the inside the beltway media uh, and the like who never venture out into India, uh, Indiana or Iowa or North Dakota. Well, we live in our, our places in Rappahannock County, Virginia, and we had some small banks there and they've been community banks. And, and now they've been absorbed into larger institutions, which were absorbed by still larger institutions. And now you go into your local banker and there's a teller maybe, but there's no loan officer. There's right. nobody there who you know. And so you're asked for, you know, I've heard people have gone in there. They say they're given a computer form they're supposed to fill out <laughs> and talk with the people in, uh, you know, New York. Right. And that's a direct consequence of the current regulatory environment. There's no more relationship lending. So it used to be you would walk into your community bank. You knew the head of the bank because, you know, you went to church with them. And they knew you, and they knew whether or not you were a credit risk or not. And right now, the movement has been away from that, away from relationship lending, because the regulations are making you check the box in very specific ways as an institution at risk of potential liability over, say, the course of a 30-year mortgage. 
And so their uh, institutions are being very careful about checking those boxes. And what it means is everybody is reduced not from a person who has a relationship where you can, with a handshake, um, make a commitment to that person, well, you know, but instead, uh, you know, essentially a commodity. And the more all of these product requirements are prescriptive and very specific, the less ability there is to deviate. And what that means is every mortgage looks the same. And if every mortgage looks the same, who's going to be more efficient at doing it? Is it going to be a large institution or a small institution? Well, I used to, I was a banker, commercial banker, and, I, and many long time ago, and we talked about the three C's of credit. You had collateral, mm -hmm. okay. You had capacity, which was cash flow, but the most important one was character. Right. And there's no box now for character. It's gone. Now, what we're describing here is a little bit of the outset. There's enormous social forces at work here. And Dodd-Frank, unfortunately, if, you, if you're a fan of bigness, you've got to love Dodd-Frank because it, it's, 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 it's entrenched the big banks while at the same time crushing uh, our communities. And where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is that back to the point of, of race and things like that and the unbanked. Is this a, an issue of, say, race in the inner city, or is it a question of uh, just lack of, um, you know, being a rural, in a rural community? It seems to me like that's a colorblind issue, and, and I think I really ask it a very complicated five-point quest, question, but yeah, I'm sure you guys are smart and you can figure it out. By the way, you're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm giving Todd and Brian a chance to answer my very complicated question. Um, access to credit, urban communities, rural communities, What's what's uh, or is it different? It's the same, different. You know, it's, it's an incredibly important question, and you know, access to the mainstream financial system is essential for all Americans of all races, of all income uh, levels. Um, and to the extent that there are issues for an identified group, they should be addressed. The you know one of the consequences we've been discussing of kind of homogenized lending where everything looks the same is that if you don't you know, if you as an applicant don't check all those boxes from a, you know, government mandated credit risk perspective, you're left on the outside. And so you have other options. Um, the government is now looking at those other options uh, as well. But promoting, you know, financial inclusion is very much a part of the CFPB's mission. What this gets to, Bill, is there's still not a political consensus over what is the proper approach to consumer protection or what does it mean? It sounds like a great term, but if what you're really deciding is not just that you're enforcing anti-discrimination laws in the country so that everybody has an equal opportunity to participate in the financial system, but instead you're moving beyond that to designing products in, in Washington, D.C., and deciding what features can exist and what can't exist, by definition you're finding folks that just don't meet the uh, you know the the model designed by Washington D.C. and there's no ability for institutions to work with an individual to modify an application or work with them to get them what they need in the way they need it and that's a fundamental tension there and it is excluding people from the financial system and it's a real problem because you know that is a um, a ladder up uh, towards um, you know wealth uh, and um, you know financial safety and, and wellness for individuals. Let me so, give you an example of, of Brian's point about unintended consequences and effect on um, uh, on on certain 
groups. Uh, an example we talked about. To be clear, I think every program. major piece of legislation is the law of unintended consequences. Well, that, that's true. Okay. Is, uh, is uh, Brian's <laughs> former boss, Jeb Hensling, said. We can uh, discuss why that is, too. Yeah. As, as Brian's former boss, Jeb Hensling, said about Dodd-Frank, there are at least three unintended consequences on every page of this legislation, uh, which uh, <laughs> remains of his many great quotes. That's yeah. one of my favorites. But I'll give you a good example of one that most people haven't heard of um, and think was probably, the, intuitively think it was a good idea. Let's take the Credit Card Act of 2009. And one of the provisions in the Credit Card Act that was enacted without anything except, without any data to back it up, any support, just some stories, was a provision that limits credit card marketing uh, to college students and says you can only get a credit card if you can show you have an independent source of income or a cosigner, right? And he says, oh, that's a good idea. There were these college students who, you know, have, uh, you know, graduated with $3,000 in credit card debt, right? The fact that they're graduating with $80,000 in student loan debt apparently wasn't a problem, but, uh, but, but let's think about how that actually washes out. So think about this. One of the problems in the American system right now is what we call credit invisibles, which are people who have no established credit or they have thin file credit. Um, and it turns out for most Americans, as we know from our experience, middle-class Americans, the first place you establish credit is by having a credit card, right? You're, you know, those of us who are parents give our kids a credit card and with limited credit line, we keep an eye on it and they use it to establish credit and they get on the ladder of credit. Let's think about the Credit Card Act of 2009. What happens if you're like our families? Well, what happens? My daughter's not in college yet, but I've talked to those who are. Um, what happens is an upper middle class parent simply co-signs for their child's credit card. And so they get a credit card when they're in college and they start charging credit, uh, you know, books and stuff like that. And we make sure they pay it off. What if you're from a low income background? What if you're from a family that doesn't have a wealthy, two, you know, two wealthy parents who can co-sign for your credit card, right? Well, you're stuck. You don't get a credit card if you're a low-income uh, person. So now you graduate from college with no credit, right? And so now you're first step on the rung of uh, credit invisibility. And so you kind of plunge out into the world with no credit, and now you've got to start establishing credit. And what we find is that that rule that a lot of people thought was a good idea ends up disadvantaging low-income people. It's no obstacle for, for higher-income people, but lower-income people if you're, if you're, delay their entire life of getting access to a credit card, a student loan, a mortgage, all because of this fact that, that the regulations don't allow them to prove themselves to be responsible people, even if they, if they are. And it's this misguided paternalism that ends up hurting low-income people. So the laws to protect people end up making them credit invisibles. Exactly. And if you're credit invisible when you're young, you're more likely to be credit invisible when you're old. You're more so, likely to have to rely so, on payday so let me, loans. Let, let me tie things. this together with a couple other things you've mentioned here. Loan sharking, we've, we established at one point, was the major way credit invisibles got money. Right. And then now we've talked about how the regulatory environment has forced a lot of activities out of banks and into uh, what they sinisterly, they call very sinister word, shadow banking or fintech or whatever term we're going to use. Are those, am I conflating something here? I mean, loan sharking looks like it's become shadow banking or is shadow banking something different from that? I mean, shadow banking is the term for anything that's not uh, activities that are financial in nature that aren't And it's meant to be a pejorative. 
and the, and, the, and the regulators came up with it to make it sound like anything that's happening outside their purview is 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 terrible. Uh, you know, unregulated. Is that unfair? Yeah. So, and you talked about the state federal overlay. So, after the major pieces of federal legislation, states over time have created many state versions of many of those major pieces of legislation, and states traditionally have been the primary regulator in the non-bank lending space. So with payday loans, et cetera, states have taken a variety of approaches. And, and so traditional kind of state-regulated activities, installment lending, vehicle title lending, pawn brokerage uh, activities. Payday lending falls into that. Payday lending falls into that. Now you have, post Dodd-Frank, a new federal overlay. And the way that traditional interaction has occurred has been upended because the CFPB can now establish a new federal floor for traditionally state-regulated activities. And states are, uh, in the law, are permitted to go further in terms of being more protective. Well, again, if nobody agrees on what appropriate consumer protection is, how can you decide whether a state law goes further in terms of providing additional protections? It, you know, it's the beauty or the ugliness is in the eye of the beholder in terms of what, what protection goes further. Typically, that means if, it's, if there's greater regulation or more restrictions on activities, that's considered greater consumer protection. Well, the effect we're talking about is if it's pushing folks out of a mainstream financial institution, if it's making them credit invisible, or if it's making them unbanked or underbanked, is that a consumer protection? It's not for those folks. It is for the folks you know, that you can identify who are uh, you know, able to continue to participate. It's not for those with marginal credit or no credit so, history. So where do the, I've raised the issues of race and social justice to begin this. How is that playing out? Uh, you're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Todd Zawicki and Brian Johnson, and we're talking about consumer financial protection, which, as I learn more, doesn't seem to protect many people and <laughs> seems to hurt an awful lot of people. And so... But it's a complicated topic. So, uh, well, what I can speak to is what the CFPB's new leadership uh, has announced uh, in, in connection with the Biden administration. So, the CFPB has responsibility for uh, enforcing uh, federal anti discrimination statutes. So, ECOA, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, is the, the major substantive one. It says you can't discriminate on a prohibited basis in the extension of credit to a borrower. Makes On the face sense. of it, that sounds just fine. Absolutely. And it's an important responsibility of the Bureau to carry out. Uh, and um, connected with that, you know, one of the two primary uh, priorities announced by new leadership is uh, explicitly to go beyond that, which is enforcement of non-discrimination statutes, and pursue a goal of racial equity. What's not clear is what that means. Typically, equality versus... Uh, it, it, versus equity means, you know, like outcomes versus like opportunities and the absence of discrimination. Well, if, if I applied critical race theory as a lender to that process, or not as a lender, but if I were a lender and a critical race, race theory were hanging out there judging this, any decision we make with somebody who's black would be racist, whether you do that. So we're basically would want to shut down any kind of standards at all. I mean, where do you where, where do you draw the line as a as a lender? Well, I, I think where it's you know going to come into play. And my, my banking roots are showing. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, reading reading into the CFPB's priorities, 
there's a clear intended focus on the credit reporting system writ large. And Which they are, want to get rid of the existing one. Well, and there are powerful members of Congress who are very interested in that. And one of the proposals as part of the Biden campaign was to replace, you know, Experian, TransUnion, Equifax with a public credit reporting system run by the CFPB. I think it requires enabling legislation to do it, but think about what that means. So rather than kind of objective, you know, furnished data uh, consolidated by those credit bureaus and then made available to lenders for purposes of making, you know, objective credit determinations, you uh, have potentially a new incentive for a government-run, you know, credit collection and reporting process uh, including with government-created, um, you know, credit scores potentially that, that can and would be used for purposes of credit decisions and credit allocation. Um, it could be that in, you know, for the first time ever that there's no politics involved in this and this would be a completely objective, standalone government program. But uh, you can see well, uh, the, the, the potential problem there, which is that, uh, you know, favored interest groups or political considerations sure, would enter sure. into the Every, equation. It's, it's axiomatic that's going to happen. If you and the existing credit reporting system works pretty well. Yeah, it's, if you like the IRS, you'll love the new federal uh, uh, consumer financial uh, yeah. credit bureau, right? Uh, if you think you get good customer service from the IRS and that they don't make any errors, then you should be all in favor of, uh, of, uh, of mirroring that. Um, uh, people have a lot of gripes with the uh, credit bureau, credit reporting system, and there are errors in the system, and there are questions of incentives. Um, um, and so it's not, it's not a perfect system, uh, that's for sure, and it's very complicated to get those incentives right, and, and, but, but, it, but it can be done. But there's, but there's a larger point here that you just made, Bill, which is we shouldn't lose track of the fact that our modern credit reporting system is truly one of the marvels, and I don't use that word lightly, it's one of the marvels of the modern world, which is the development of consumer. In the old days, basically what happened, if you wanted to get a loan, there was a good side, as you said, character is one of the C's. But if you didn't know somebody, if you didn't know the bank manager, right, especially in an era where they had interest rate restrictions, basically what happened was bankers made loans to their buddies. Uh, to their golf buddies uh, uh, and the like. And if you were on the fringe, you didn't get a loan from a bank and you had to deal with an uh, uh, installment loan or, uh, or something like that in, in an era when interest rates were very low. The consumer, uh, the, the credit reporting system totally changed that. That is the vehicle by which access to financial services were democratized in this country. First, it was very important for women which is that, uh, you know, one of the problems is this consumer finance system grew. The history shows that there was a lot of discretion in local lending officers um, who often discriminated against, uh, against uh, uh, women, and they had all these archaic uh, uh, practices, and so got, got rid of that, and, and also, obviously, with respect to minorities, by basically giving objective data on which you could make these judgments. And what they want to do is so regressive which is that they want to go back to a system where rather than people allowing their credit reports to speak for themselves as to whether they were credit worthy or not, now they want to put all these politics back into it, whether you're favored or disfavored or 
And basically what they have said is the reason they want to change, they want the government to grab a hold of the credit reporting system is to deal with the furtherance of racial equity uh, and the like, to deal with the fact that there are statistical differences between races and the like with respect to their credit scores uh, uh, and the like. I think that is a terrible idea. A better idea, I suggest, is more competition, which is opening the system to alternative data, to new ways of, uh, of measuring people's creditworthiness using cash flow and other sorts of things, and give people a chance to prove uh, that they're that they're creditworthy so, so, rather than going. So the so we're we've got a system which is mostly 98 colorblind. Right. has brought every other group in who wouldn't have had access to credit because of their attributes. They now have access to it if they've got a good number. Yeah. They want to get rid of that and put it all back onto identity politics. Basically, yeah, just a different identity politics from than how it was in the old days. Because I didn't, you know, when I, I, the introduction, I wasn't exactly sure where I was going, but I had a feeling like this was somehow underlying a lot of this. Uh, so... We're running out of time. I've got about, I got about five hours more questions. What are you doing <laughs> for the rest of the afternoon? Um, how much regulation do we actually need? Seems to me like we've piled on, piled on, piled on, piled on. Now the whole thing's become so ossified and and uh, complex that uh, I mean, what if you just cut the Gordian knot and freed up the market to provide credit? Complex is the right word to say. So. You know, my view on, you know, should we have more or less, that's not precisely the right question to ask. The question should, should be, should we have smart regulation or really dumb regulation? And I think too often regulators believe that they're regulating a system that is complicated. So, for instance, take your watch. It has a, number, a lot of pieces, small gears, finely tuned. If you put it together, it works the same way every time. That's not how a market operates because human beings aren't cogs in a big machine. Human beings can react. So it's a complex adaptive system that we're working in. So when you're trying to apply you know, rules that you would use as a watchmaker to a financial system, you always have the unintended consequences that you talk about because you can't foresee every possible reaction of millions of individual human beings acting in their own self-interest and adapting in real time. So you have different outputs every time you have the same input, and it's not predictable. So the question is, what's the proper approach to regulation if you recognize that you need to be regulating for a complex system, not a complicated system? So it's sort of a part of it. It's related to the problem we have of modeling the economy or modeling a pandemic. It's so utterly complex, you can't really do it. Well, you can't predict with certainty outcomes because millions of people are reacting in real time to stimulus, and they don't all share the same uh, information. They don't all have the same characteristics, intelligence, interests, et cetera. So the, the, some of the lessons that I think can be drawn from this, and Todd wrote uh, a review of Richard Epstein's um, book, uh, Simple Rules for a Complex World, is um, should you have a top-down prescriptive approach to regulation? That's how you would, you know, govern, uh, you know, how to build, say, the space shuttle. Is that the way you should govern the financial system? No. It turns out that for p folks who study complexity and study systems dynamics, usually the rules that are best for a complex system are simple rules with, dis with decentralized decision-making. 
So that means should every decision be made by Washington or should the majority of decisions be left to state uh, regulators or to local regulators to make those decisions? And should the rules be highly prescriptive? In other words, you know, in order to, uh, you know, originate a mortgage right now, um, you know, in accordance with the CFPB's QM rules, it has to have certain features, can't have other features, you can do this, you can't do that, et cetera. Or should you have more of, um, you know, a, a less prescriptive approach with, instead of prescriptive requirements, standards in place, which is, you know, here's the goal to shoot for, and the government is going to establish those goals, go figure out the best way to achieve that goal. I think, yeah, and I think that one thing that Brian and I both feel very strongly about is this, this language about deregulation isn't a useful way to think about this. That buys into sort of the progressive mindset that there's a continuum between more and less. And more regulation is good for consumers and less regulation is good for industry. That's not useful. The way we should be thinking about regulation is how do we make markets work better? How do we pass regulations that are good for consumers, industry, and the economy at large that allows consumers to find the products and services that they need to make <laughs> their lives better? Because um, that's what this is really about. And, I, and there's basically three principles, I think, that, that, that matter here and we talk about in our task force report. The first is we have to have a system that's more flexible and more modern. Um, the system right now was built for a 1970s economy. Um, in the 1970s, analog, paper-based uh, uh, economy, computers hardly existed at that point. Uh, um, nowadays, things change so quickly. There's constant innovation. There's constant changes. It's constant things away. And just look at the past year. Look at the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What we've seen during the pandemic, for example, on electronic payments, for example, is what was going to take 15 years took nine months, right? Uh, and, and our system's just not set up to deal with those sorts of uh, changes. We've had three major crises that have impacted consumers in the last 20 years, right? Y2K, 2008 financial crisis and the pandemic, and nobody thinks those are going to be the end. We've got to have a more flexible system that's more modern, more adaptable to changes. There were laws in states, for example, that still required in-person real estate closings, in-person uh, real estate appraisals, just total special interest laws that did nothing for consumers, mm -hmm. but we had a problem. The second thing is information. Consumers get information differently now. Delivering information just in time to people's cell phones, allowing them to read disclosures on their cell phones, that's important for people to be able to get what, what they need. And think about what consumers actually need to know rather than the dozens and dozens of disclosures that people have to wade through without knowing what's important. We, we need to have a better system that focuses on that. The third thing is the way forward and the way it's always been is competition and innovation. Whether it was the credit card issuers who took advantage of the, the, the changes in the regulatory framework in the 70s to create access to credit cards for everybody. Nowadays, Walmart should be get a banking charter if Walmart wants a banking charter. And to Eleanor Mc, uh, McWilliams' credit during the Trump administration, she allowed industrial loan companies like Square and others to, be, who, who, to get access to banking charters. We need more of that. Um, fintech should be allowed. We need a fintech, national fintech charter that can lend to uh, consumers anywhere in the, uh, 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 in the country. We need uh, to explore allowing non-banks access to the, uh, to the, to the payment system, um, whether it's um, Amazon or whoever to set up their own uh, financial uh, services. Instead, what are we getting? We're getting a, uh, a national 
government uh, a credit bureau? The answer, they say, is the post office. That while the rest of us get FedEx banking, poor people can have can go, go to the post office, right? Nine to five post office banking, they think, is the, uh, the cure for financial inclusion. It's crazy. The idea, that's a, you know, that's a 19th century regulated public utility model of financial inclusion that solves a problem that isn't, that, that isn't a problem, which is uh, access, right? Uh, that's not why consumers are unbanked. We need more choice, more competition, more innovation. That's how we're going to solve financial inclusion uh, in this country. Todd, thank you. That was excellent. Brian, excellent. Uh, I feel like we've just touched the tip of the iceberg, and I was confused about this before we came into it, and I think you guys have clarified it somewhat, but I think we can take it further. Um, let, let, let's figure out when we can get you back to get into some of these solutions you talked about, and I'm particularly interested in the free market solution because where we're going now is the wrong direction. Uh, where can we find your writings, Todd? Uh, you can find that uh, either the Cato Institute or on my website at, uh, at Antonin Scalia Law School. Okay, and and Brian, what about you? Where are you? Are you you're Alston Bird? Are you guys writing these days on the Consumer Finance Abstract blog for our okay. firm, and also you, contributing? What's the what's the, uh, what's the URL? Yeah, consumerfinanceabstract.com. Okay, and also contributing to the Heritage Foundation. Okay, great guys. Well, thanks. Well, thanks for uh, edifying me, and I hope we edified all of you who have been listening and watching. And uh, we'll be talking with you next time again uh, soon. So, thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over a hundred episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our interesting people page. And send us your comments. We read everyone, and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining. Mm -hmm.